the OGL. In the year 2000, to bring together a fractured RPG industry alongside the release of the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons, Wizards of the Coast released the Open Gaming License. This legal document allowed third-party publishers blanket access to D&D's new framework. It's this document that made the Pathfinder role-playing game possible. Now, the RPG landscape is disrupted by a proposed revision to the OGL called OGL 1.1, leaked by Roll for Combat. In this special edition of the No Direction podcast, we'll be analyzing what we know about OGL 1.1, discussing the hottest takes resulting from the leak, and speculating on the impact such changes could have on the future of Pathfinder and the RPG industry as a whole. I'm Ryan Costello, Director of Logistics at the No Direction Network. I'm joined by Pathfinder and Starfinder Freelancer, an owner of Everybody Games LLC, a third-party publisher of Pathfinder and Starfinder material, Mr. Alex Agunas. Hello, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, Alex. <laughs> Alex has been putting together a an article on the OGL, and he's put together a succinct timeline of basically the whole history of Dungeons & Dragons, which we'll go into briefly on this show. But also with I'm us sure. right now is a luminary of the RPG industry, a veteran of Wizards of the Coast, Paizo, and many other RPG publishers. His work includes a multitude of games and lines that owe their existence to the original OGL, Mr. Owen K.C. Stevens. Hello, Owen. Hi, folks. All right. Owen, thanks for bringing your expertise here. I can think of very few people who have as much experience with the OGL in such a broad range of, uh, of products as you do. A, a chunk of my career over the past 22 years uh, has been driven by the OGL and OGL-rated products and, and companies that have embraced the OGL. So before we begin, full disclosure, and there's going to be a lot. <laughs> I mentioned Very that Roll much. for Combat leaked to OGL 1.1. Uh, the No Direction Network server is hosted by Roll for Combat. Additionally, the majority of the No Direction staff either freelances for or works full-time for Paizo Publishing, uh, who are all affected by this. And uh, personally, I freelance for Renegade Game Studios on the Essence 20 line of RPGs based on Hasbro licenses. Hasbro is the owner of Wizards of the Coast. I've already seen some people even in the Essence 20 space speculating on how that affects that game, even though it is not even an OGL game. Alex, I'm sure there are matters you need to discuss above and beyond what I just said. Yeah, so um, in addition to running Everybody Games, you know, uh, my partner is Dustin Knight, who is a Paizo employee. So it's like, this is very close to us in our future. So yeah, <laughs> you're going to see me awkwardly smile a lot if you're watching the video. <laughs> and uh, if you're listening to the audio, I'm sure you'll hear it in my voice too. And Owen? Uh, so I'm not currently employed by any other company, but I freelance for a lot of companies, including Paizo, uh, although not recently in the past, including Wizards of the Coast, uh, including Green Ronin, uh, including uh, Evil Genius Games, who are third-party OGL product companies. I also own Rogue Genius Games, the vast majority of products of which are OGL products. Uh, through that, I am the publisher for Everybody Games LLC. So, I mean, he owns his games, but I'm the one putting them up and, and getting sales for them. And I have my own Patreon, my own blog, uh, and Rogue Genius Games, all of which are dependent on the OGL. So that's on top of the fact that I am, I, some of my very best friends work for, and in some cases own some of these companies. So mm. uh, absolutely, if you're looking for someone with no connections that might make them biased, I ain't that guy. <laughs> I, I, there's no one on the network we could ask that isn't biased. Like this, this hits everybody. Uh, finally, none of us are lawyers. This does not constitute legal advice. Uh, we know a lawyer. He works for Wizards of the Coast. 
We are the passionate <laughs> gamers, each with a measure of experience and expertise related to the OGL, and we will be using that expertise to break down the recent OGL news and speculate on its future. But first... So to be really, really clear, I am not going to say I'm not a lawyer every time I say something that sounds like an interpretation of law. No. Yeah. Uh, it's I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I am an expert in the industry that has had to deal with it, and that's it. This is not legal advice, and... If you are thinking of publishing anything under the OGL or you have published anything under the OGL and you have concerns, go get a IP slash copyright slash trademark slash contract lawyer who understands the game industry, what a role-playing game is, and the OGL. Yeah, these are blanket statements. If we had to put a blanket on every time we made these statements, we would be buried under blankets. Although it would be really funny if we got like a blinking light for the video version that says we are not lawyers, just persistently blinking in the corner of the screen. I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. People can envision that in their mind's eye. That, that's fair. If you're listening to us on a podcast, I totally did what Alex just suggested. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are going to speculate on the future, but let's start in the past. Let's start with right. just analyzing what even is the open game license. And uh, Owen, I think we've established your credentials, so I'd like you to take this one. The open game license uh, is a license that specifically is designed to allow people to create content using content that has been released under the open game license. And the first thing released under the open game license was the SRD or system resource document that had most of the core rules of third edition D&D. So it had all the information about the classes. It had the vast majority of the monsters, although very specifically there are a few it didn't. Uh, the vast majority of the spells for the stuff in the player's handbook, monster manual, and dungeon master's guide. And then Wizards of the Coast never really released anything else to the SRD. So all the stuff they did after that 4.3.0 and 3.5, I think they did do a 3.5 SRD actually. But the point is when they did Monster Manual 2 and, and they did Stormracked and they did their adventures, none of that stuff had more stuff released to the open game license. But because that stuff was out there, you could make an adventure using D&D monsters and classes as, as a professional publisher. And you could put that up for sale. And there were specific rules on how to do it and what you had to follow. And there was at the time also a very important thing called the D20 system trademark license, uh, which allowed you as a separate license, which specifically said it could be revoked, to put a D20 system trademark logo on your product. And from 2000, uh, let's say 2003, 2004, that was the majority of the English speak speaking RPG commercial world was it's, it's often called the D20 glut. Uh, and eventually the D20 system license the, the the logo license was revoked and so now people could just publish things under the ogl that is a it share and share alike license in that if you use it any new game content that you release under it other people can use so you actually put the license in your book in addition to using what gets to come before people get to come along and use your stuff after and it has a concept called product identity which is material that is not based on previous game rules and that is not public domain uh, that you are not saying people can use. And that is normally things like place names and storylines and specific characters. Uh, so for example, uh, first edition Pathfinder released by Paizo was released under the open game license and all of their rules, not just their core rulebook rules, but pretty much all the rules that they have done for the, the first edition role-playing game, they released as part of an SRD because they had to indicate 
what was open and what was closed. But the names of their gods, their world, the names of their adventures, uh, the names of their characters, all of the stuff that was storyline or proper noun related, they kept closed. So you could come along as I did often and create a new class. You could say, okay, uh, I've created the dragon writer. So now you can write a dragon and play that in Pathfinder first edition. But when I did that, I could not say, hey, dragon riders are particularly common uh, on Triaxis out in, in the solar system uh, around Galarian because all those things were protected. I think the best example of what you were allowed and not allowed to do with the OGL was that you could not use the name Dungeons and Dragons to the point that on the product, most of the time it said, this is compatible with the world's best-selling or oldest role-playing game. Yep. Yep. Uh, and and Paizo did that a lot. Other people did that a lot. Uh, that became especially common when the D20 system trademark license got pulled because you couldn't put a big D20 system logo on it anymore. Um, but importantly, there are uh, two important notes. One, the OGL is not restricted to things that originated from D&D. So the open game license has been used for the fudge role-playing game for the fate role-playing game for the d6 adventure role-playing game and these are all games with no origin whatsoever in the srd that was released they don't borrow any of the dnd rule set at any point they just took the open game license as a way to make their games open and it, why that is incredibly important will become clear as we move forward but i just want to point it out secondly there are a lot of people who are making games that are rooted in the ogl but aren't DD games uh, mutants and masterminds is a great example it's a superhero game it is not compatible one never has been uh, and was never meant to be with DD. it is its own role-playing game that used some of the same engine as a shortcut to have a fast design and to have a system that people would recognize and use. And they're in their third edition. Uh, they still use the OGL, but their game is very different and in no way uh, borrowing from the intellectual property of a fantasy RPG. There are also things like 13th Age, Critical Role, uh, Midgard. So a lot of companies have entire game lines that are OGL driven that are not necessarily specifically designed to tie into any edition of DD. Now, I want to bring attention to one particular line in the OGL. Perpetual worldwide non-exclusive license. Can you uh, go into that a little bit? So the there was a, a gentleman's agreement uh, email group in 1999 when this was being put together where Ryan Dancy had pulled together some potential publishers and I was fortunate enough to be put on that list. I just want to say Ryan this... Dancy was the uh, vice president of Wizards of the Coast at the time. Uh, and also the owner of the Open Gaming Foundation. Uh, and he has recently gone and renewed his links because suddenly people are looking it up again. Uh, but he was also one of the important architects of the OGL. Um, he had gotten a bunch of publishers together and said, this is what the OGL is going to look like uh, so that you all can have products ready when we release this. So please understand that this isn't permanent yet, but the gentleman's agreement is we trust that you, you are going to do your best to follow this. The whole point of that phrase was that Wizards of the Coast would not be able to end that license. It's perpetual. It goes on forever. It has no listed end date. They could have listed an end date. They chose not to. It is royalty free. You don't have to pay anybody for the open game content you are using with that open game license. Uh, what was the other term that you mentioned? 
Worldwide, I believe. Uh, uh, worldwide. So it was not restricted to a specific language, for example. There are French OGL games and Spanish OGL games and Russian OGL games. Uh, so those were all in there to assure publishers that you could make something. And if the something you made was hugely popular, Wizards of the Coast cannot shut you down, cannot steal it away, uh, and can't tell you you can't sell it in, in Australia. Alex, you've been working up the timeline of Dungeons Dragons history, and I think a important an important thing to understand of why Wizards of the Coast released such a such an open license, just something that was they could have put in so many more stopgaps, and they mm -hmm. didn't. Uh, we should go over what led to the OGL and what the uh, the feel of the industry was around 1999 2000. I'd be happy to do that, and I'll do my best to keep it as succinct as I can. Um, so. In 1970, that's obviously when TSR was founded, TSR being D&D's original publisher. And it's important to know this because by the time you fast forward 20 years into like the, the mid to late 1990s, TSR was basically bankrupt they were not doing very good um by that point uh they had they were coming off of the satanic panic which anybody who's seen the most recent season of stranger things knows a thing or two about uh in general sales were way down <laughs> or those those that lived through it or those who lived through i'm sorry i didn't <laughs> but uh yes anybody who lived through it or has seen stranger things is aware of the satanic panic which is basically where everybody was obsessed with D D as this like gateway into like satanic practices and rituals uh it got a really bad rep i know i always joke with my boyfriend that when i started my mother asked me if i cut myself and drew circles with the blood and that was in like to the 2000s so like this was a pervasive thing with people who lived through it and because of that wizards when wizards purchased the rights to D, D in the late 90s they knew that they had to do a lot of work in order to get this brand off the ground as something that would make back the money they spent acquiring it the ogl was instrumental in that the idea was that if they could get the community to generate content and generate product and that like things were moving it would translate into more sales of wizards books because they weren't going to get enough product out to really like get D&D &D moving again, like what it had been in the 70s. And this was specifically grounded in something that, again, Ryan Dancy referred to as yeah. the SCAF effect, which was a thing that had been proposed by SCAF Elliott, who was an employee, um, who said that the reason D&D &D is popular is not because it is the best game or because of the first game, but it is the game that the most people know how to play. So if you got three people, it might not be the number one choice of any of those three people and they're trying to play a game. Someone might have preferred Traveler and someone else Champions and someone else World of Darkness. But if all three of them's second choice was D&D, they ended up playing D&D and then they needed to buy more D&D books. So the concept was that a, a rising tide would lift all boats, that if there was more and more and more cool D&D compatible content, that would drive sales of both D&D and that content, especially in the area of things like adventures and GM advice, because adventures had never sold super well for TSR. But analysis showed that games that did not have adventures available tended to peter out. So Wizard of the Coast really wanted other people who had a different scale on what was profitable to write adventures that you would then buy D&D products to make your characters and put out your monsters to attack people in somebody else's adventure. No, I just I want think to it's... focus in, Alex, on you were saying, yeah. you seem to give a lot of, uh, not credit, but uh, you, you seem to blame the Satanic Panic a lot on Dungeons & Dragons, uh, uh, the state of the industry 
in the late 90s, but it's also just uh, TSR as a company was not doing very well. And that period where TSR sold to Wizards of the Coast was one of the only times where Dungeons Dragons was effectively out of print. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, the uh, OGL was brought in as a way that, like, instead of all these fractured small games that everyone was playing, if everyone w- could design for Dungeons & Dragons, then everyone would buy Dungeons & Dragons, and Dungeons & Dragons would once again become the main game in the market. And not just Dungeons & Dragons, a third edition, right? I mean, the yeah. biggest Dungeons & Dragons before that had been advanced D&D second edition. And they were dropping having two versions of D&D, which a number of people thought was a mistake. And they were mm-hmm. dropping calling in advance, which a number of people thought were a mistake. And they just said it was going to be third edition, and they were putting out all three core rule books, like one right after the other, which a lot of people thought was a mistake. And they did a huge print run, which a lot of people thought was a mistake. Wizards of the Coast doubled down on third edition D&D as a new launch of a game with a rule set that was not as close to second edition as second edition had been to first. It was not particularly close to what they had done with D&D, with basic. Um, So part of this was to create a buy-in for that set of rules which was at the time in 2000, an unproven new set of rules that where you could find pundits talking about it because the internet was a very different creature back then, uh, they were not necessarily in favor. And and it was common for people in the industry to say, well, this is obviously going to be a flop. I got told that over and over and over. This is obviously going to be a flop. So part of the goal was to make it easy for people to support the rule set that was going to be everything that, that, Wizards of the Coast did going forward. And they didn't just do D&D. The D20 system was used for the Star Wars role-playing game, three editions. It was used for the Wheel of Time role-playing game. Uh, It was used for their version of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Um, They did a game called D20 Modern. So for that period, when they released this license, the goal of Wizards of the Coast was to make the D20 system ubiquitous and to have the most popular, most profitable highest quality of those systems so that they would benefit from everybody else also producing stuff it's important to remember that like i know when i've been talking about the ogl on twitter uh, i've had people go oh wow that's a really cool thing that's really friendly that wizards of the coast did making the ogl and it's like well it is but like it's also important to remember that it was capitalistic and was ultimately to serve their profit margins which like is kind of where we're at right now too. Right. It was it a business also, decision. Yes. Yeah. It, the other business decision was to encourage people to not simply make compatible games that said compatible with D&D because a process, general law, a process cannot be copyrighted. It cannot be trademarked. A process, including game rules, must be patented. If you are, And in fact, Wizards of the Coast tried patenting Magic Gathering game mechanics. But there was no way they could patent rolling a die. Rolling a die predated all this. There were way too many other games out there. So part of this was to encourage people not to do what some companies had done in making D&D compatible books that said they were D&D compatible, just writing them from scratch and trusting that you could not copyright the concept of the game rules or trademark it, and they weren't patented. But to encourage people to do it under a specific set of rules And that consideration is literally listed in the license. It says, in consideration of. So at the time, Wizards of the Coast believed that when you used the open game license, they were gaining something. You were giving them something, and they were giving you something. It was an exchange. Mm -hmm. Not a monetary exchange. We'll get to that. Right. But like a rights exchange. (laughs) I'm chuckling nervously. All right, before we move on to OGL 1.1, uh... Alex, can you briefly then explain what happened 
when this perpetual license continue exists, while Wizards of Coast is trying to do a new fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons that was not OGL compatible. Well, uh, let's just say that the year after the OGL came out was the year that Wizards of the Coast was acquired by Hasbro, and then about 10 years later is when they started looking to do fourth edition D&D. Is that right? And it was 2001? Nope. Uh, it was 2000, and they acquired them in 2008, and then in 2000, they, they acquired them in 1998, and then in 2008, they put out the fourth edition role-playing game. Okay, hold on. There right, were but, a few but days Hasbro, I'm confused. Hasbro owned them prior to the OGL coming out. The OGL did not come out until 2000. Really? I found an article that said that they didn't officially acquire them in 2008 until, until 1998. I'm sorry. So they didn't acquire them until 1998. The yeah. OGL did not come out until 2000. Okay. Huh. All right. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, 10 years later after the acquisition is when 4th edition came out. And then uh, at that point, like so i really can't dive in a whole lot into the the gs the gsl which is the fourth edition version of this gaming license i was not playing a whole lot of fourth and i definitely wasn't a publisher then so we'll have to rely on owen and ryan for talking more about it but the thing that really got people wild up in the uh, creator community was that it had a clause in it that basically said that if you published under the GSL, you were not allowed to publish under the original OGL. Uh, people colloquially call it a poison pill clause. And because the idea is that if you take this new one, then the other thing is dead to you. And that was a big problem for many publishers who may not have been all on board with all the rule set, didn't like the idea of moving to a significantly more restrictive GSL. And you kind of saw a lot of that unity that the open game and licensings originally sought to create start to splinter and crack with people making different OGL products and refusing to transition over to the GSL. Uh, obviously, for our purposes, Paizo is a very famous example of that, but they were hardly the only ones. Right. Well, in conjunction with if you go uh, publish under the GSL, you can no longer publish under the OGL. There was also the clause in the GSL that said that at any point in time, Wizards could revoke this license, and if you had product, you had to destroy it. Like, you could no longer sell product. It, it yep. wasn't like, we could revoke it here. You have six months to liquidate your product. It was just, on a whim, they could decide <laughs> that your product was no longer viable, no matter how much money you would have messed it into it. And, yep. and very, very clearly, the thought process at Wizards of the Coast was that everyone will only be buying things that are D&D compatible. That was clearly what they thought for fourth edition. And as a result, we will not release the fourth edition rules under the open gaming license at all because we can't revoke it. We will instead create a new license that does what we want because we don't like how the OGL is now allowing other people to make a lot of money. And it's worth noting that we are talking about what WotC thinks Watsi is a corporation. It is an ever-changing number of people. People come, people go, new people are charged, new opinions come. Uh, Ryan Dancy left, right? So the, the people who had an opinion of what the OGL should mean when they started were not the same people making the decisions when the GSL came along. But they made the GSL as restrictive and draconian and unpleasant as they wanted because they felt everyone will have to back this because no one will keep buying material, or at least not a significant number of people, will keep buying material for old games. Uh, and instead, what happened was almost no one made anything for the GSL. The people that did did not get nearly as many sales, and OGL material continued to sell well, and companies made whole new games to support that market. Yeah, the biggest of which was, of course, Pathfinder. Pathfinder came about as a revision of Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. It came about because the OGL allowed them to. 
that they could create a whole new game based on the framework. They created their own IP, which is one half of what makes Wizards, uh, sorry, Wizards, what makes uh, Pathfinder so popular. Some people are there for the system, some people are there for the setting. And so there was this just strong competition that was very Dungeons and Dragons like, but wasn't Dungeons and Dragons in name, but it, it was Dungeons and Dragons in framework. And so it was a spiritual successor to Dungeons and Dragons that actually managed to outsell Dungeons and Dragons at one point. Uh, it for note, I do not believe it ever managed to outsell Dungeons and Dragons. The the reporting that says so uh, does not include any sales that are not recorded by whoever sitting at the desk when the magazine calls them. Right? It does not include anything from Amazon. It does not include anything from direct sales. It does not include overseas sales. So to me having worked at both companies and spoken to people who worked at both companies at the time that happened and working at Paizo when that happened, that a, a magazine report said that it was being outsold. It wasn't. But fourth, Wazers of the Coast needs many, many, many more sales to hit their target numbers. They are a larger company. They spend more money. They have more overhead. And they are trying to impress Hasbro, who owns them, that this is as big as Hot Wheels or G.I. Joe or Transformers or any of their other huge brands. Mm -hmm. um, but also, there were games being made at the time that were more successful, apparently, than the D20 games other than D&D that Wizards of the Coast made. Uh, there was uh, Spycraft, which was a D20-based modern game that for many years was clearly more popular than D20 Modern. So, uh, and, and it still exists. It's not as big anymore. Games come and go. But there was a, a whole slew of games that were moving into spaces that were doing a better job there than Wizards of the Coast was. I was contracted to write D20 Spectaculars, which was going to be a superhero book for D20 Modern. And one of the things that happened is fans and company owners and store owners kept contacting me and saying, why would Wizards of the Coast do this when Mutants and Masterminds is clearly the D20 superhero game of choice? And all I could say was, hey, I'm a freelancer. They're paying me. I'll do it. And as it happens, they canceled D20 Modern and D20 Spectaculars before it was ever finished being written. But I believe that part of what happened is that during this period, they saw that other people were able to do things with an engine they originally created that they were not able to successfully do. Yeah, the kind of like the the hubbub is that Dungeons Dragons Fourth Edition was a failure, but I believe it was even Eric Mona who said that any other publisher in the RPG industry would kill for the numbers that Fourth Edition got. It's just 100%. that by Wizards of the Coast standards, it was underperforming, and therefore they went back to the drawing board. They did an extended play test and released a game that they did not call Fifth Edition, but the community insisted that it be called Fifth Edition, and yep. so we ended up with Dungeons Dragons Fifth Edition which uh, came out at a good time and was popular with uh, influential people and became one of the best-selling role-playing games of all time and is mm -hmm. far and away the best-selling role-playing game at the moment. Yes. Absolutely. And now we're on the we're looking at the dawn of D&D &D 1 and the OGL 1.1. So uh, who knows more about D&D &D 1? Uh, I know enough to know that they call it 1D&D &D and not D&D &D Oh, do 1. they? Oh, my yeah. mistake. Yeah, because otherwise it would be DM done. Oh, you know what? <laughs> DM I saw that joke, and I think that's why yeah. it imprinted on me. Sorry. So, so it is, in one fact, D &D. one D&D. &D, uh, the effort yeah. being that we are not doing different editions anymore. There's only just this one D&D. &D. That's, that's the pitch. Yeah. 
give it five years, maybe 10. Uh, anyway, uh, I know a bit about it in terms of some of its mechanics. I've been trying to keep up. I have a 5e friend group that I play with every now and then. So like have it, seeing what's been going on with it is a vested interest to me. Um, I know that uh, they're doing a playtesting process right now and it's going pretty well. And uh, there has been this question of, it is one D&D going to use the OGL? And like, there have been rumblings for, I'd say since about the beginning of December that maybe they were gonna be like putting out a different version of the OGL or something big was gonna change. Uh, there was a lot of talk. Uh, there was like a fireside chat, right, Rob? Uh, right, Ryan, where they talked about, uh, they, they talked about uh, like the monetization of D&D, which really got people starting like kind of going, oh, what, what's going on? Uh, there was a fireside chat before that. There was actually, ah, I, I meant to grab this. Um, somebody sued Wizards of the Coast basically saying that Dungeons and Dragons is doing so well, it should splinter off and be its own company. I don't have the details of it, but this was it one sued, of... Oh, go ahead. Sued Hasbro specifically. Yes. They sued Hasbro saying that as uh, shareholders... We are suing you because we believe you are not properly monetizing D&D, and here is what we think should be done. Uh, it is also worth noting, at this time, there were a lot of people in October, November, even September of last year, who were claiming that what, what was happening is that Hasbro was getting ready to sell D&D. Um, and they had long talk pieces on why they thought this was the case. And the reason I mention this is that all turned out to be obviously wrong, and it prime the pump for people to not trust rumors about what was going to be happening with D&D sort of from tea leaf, read, leaf reading. So mm -hmm. some of those other rumors include that uh, Dungeons & Dragons was outselling any Hasbro toy line and that was one of the um, main motivations for this lawsuit and shortly thereafter Hasbro hired a new CEO uh, Chris Cox who comes from the video game industry and now we're going to lead into that fireside chat you were talking about Alex where CEO Chris Cox, sorry, Hasbro CEO Chris Cox and Wizards of the Coast CEO Cynthia Williams used the phrase under monetized to describe Dungeons and Dragons to their investors. Yeah, you know, the line in that fireside that kind of made me start feeling a little worried is when they said that their goal was to create a recurrent spending environment. That to me sounds like microtransactions. And even when they first said it, I was like, ooh, what are you guys going to do? How are you going to do this? Are you monetizing um, monetizing D&D Beyond? Because like that was my first guess and <laughs> apparently that wasn't their plan their apparently their plan was to tighten the uh, ogl with the but at the time that's kind of what a lot of people were buzzing about i i think that is by the way their plan i i think their plan is many fold um yeah part of the plan is to make sure that no one can make anything that competes with their new one D D without giving them a cut if it's a significant amount of money and that if it's ever something they don't like they can shut it down entirely and they're going to have their own virtual tabletop and they're monetizing D&D uh, &D Beyond and they've got a movie coming out and I'm pretty sure that they're going to be looking to sell, you know, toys and lunchboxes again. The, if, if you look at the video game world, there is a ton of money that comes in from sales of Halo toys and action figures, mm -hmm. right? Um, and if you look around, yes, D&D &D has miniatures, but they there are a lot of other people competing with miniatures with exactly the same names, right? Here is a red dragon miniature. Here is an orc miniature. Um, a lot of the stuff that you would as sort of life brand 
uh, material people are choosing to get from places other than Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro. And I am pretty sure that part of what Wizards of the Hasbro, Wizards of the Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast <laughs> and Hasbro want is for them to be the source of all licensing for all that stuff. So uh, they're going to have their own virtual tabletop, I am certain. Uh, they're going to pay you to use it. It'll have the D&D rules automatically in it. And yet, currently, you can play a lot of 5th edition D&D on uh, Fantasy Grounds. Or or uh, what's the D20? Roll 20. Roll, Roll 20, 20, Foundry. There's lots of places. Oh, and you said they're going to pay you to use the virtual tabletop? You mean they're no, no, going to no. charge you, you? Yes, they're going to okay. charge you. Absolutely. Um, so this is all part of an effort to tighten and shut off everything. And there are people who worked at Wizards of the Coast at the time of fourth edition being ended who have told me that internally a lot of the people who were responsible for the amount of money D&D made. So not the designers, not, not the, the editors, not even the, the D&D uh, uh, brand teams, but people higher up on the scale than that justified its lack of performance by saying, well, we had to compete with all this OGL stuff. Uh, that's not something you said publicly, but I, I was told by people who were there that that was said a lot internally. And so the lesson they took away from that is we cannot allow an OGL, clearly, that we cannot allow an OGL to exist for the new edition of the game because we've seen the fourth edition, if there are other options, people will take them. They are now specifically claiming, for example, that the OGL was never designed for anything but print or printable products. Whereas in 2004, <clears throat> the link that Alex grabbed from the Wayback Machine, their frequently asked questions says, yes, you can use the OGL for video games. Here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. So I, I cannot describe this as anything other than a bad faith effort to rewrite history to claim that they never intended to do this stuff. Yeah, I've got the quote here from the Gizmodo article. Uh, the new agreement states that the open game license was always intended, always intended to allow the community to help grow D&D &D and expand it creatively. It wasn't intended to subsidize major competitors, uh, especially now that PDF is by far the most common form of distribution. So actually, sorry, this quote is slightly different from the one you were just talking about. But uh, it is along similar lines where they are rewriting yeah. history by saying that they're talking about the intent, whereas, like, I've interviewed Ryan Dancy. I know what his intent was. You've worked with Ryan Dancy. Yep. This is not true. Correct. Mm -hmm. It was the intent to, to increase the buy-in of D&D. It's just not true that they didn't want electronic products or that it was not designed to allow their competitors to make stuff. They, they literally sent information to their competitors prior to the release of third edition so that those competitors could make products. And one of the earliest, um, one of the earliest things to come out of the SRD was the Hypertext SRD, which is just a website that included all the SRD information that was hyperlinked in a way like this is pre PDF, and so this was one of the most, best ways to get the electronic information, and it revolutionized the game. I didn't know anyone that was playing a Dungeons Dragons game that wasn't using the Hypertext SRD at the time. I didn't start playing D and D like as a thing I did regularly with my friends until like 2006, 2007. And I like lived on that site. I wouldn't be the creator or the gamer that I am today without that site. And that site is ancient. <laughs> like, uh, and, it, and I never, ever used that site to play, but I went to it every time I was hired to write something that was supposed to be D and D compatible because I knew it was, 
dangerous to open a DD rule book and look at the rules. I needed to go and look at the hypertext, which reminds me, the psychic rules were also there. That was the other one set of non-original rules that that Wizards of the Coast did do open versions of. Yeah, the science stuff, right? Yeah. I knew better than to interrupt you to bring it up, but yes, the, for whatever reason, <laughs> one other handbook was also introduced into the SRD, and that was like 75% of the Psionics handbook. All right, so we're talking about the OGL 1.1, which is, within it, there is language that says that now the OGL 1.0 is no longer valid. So so let's mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about first about what we do and don't actually know. Um, yes. We know that they are going to release something that they are calling the OGL 1.1. That is part of a press release Wizards of the Coast made. Uh, There are specific things they said about that, that at the time I wanted reporters to push back on because those were things, as we just discussed, were actively not provably true. And most reporters did not push back on it because most of them looked at it, reported it, and and repeated what was said. Mm -hmm. Um, Since then... Uh, I had begun hearing a lot of people talk about some specific terminology, and these are people I trust, but they were all getting it secondhand, so I was not wanting to speculate about this publicly. Then, Roll for Combat, uh, Stephen Glicker and Mark Seifter said that they had gotten it from a source they trusted, Uh, and that was a specific named person I could point to, hey, they trust their source, they believe this is true, and so I started wanting to talk about it because it specifically included the language claiming that the OGL... 1.0 1.0a is no longer authorized but yes. we do not ourselves have the ogl 1.1 yet apparently a full copy of it uh was sent to kotaku uh and we have the link to that i believe uh and alex very much wanted to make sure we mentioned the the author's name of that article right her name is linda code uh Kodga. you should uh, definitely Kodega. You definitely want to search it and make sure to give her a click so that you can, you know, read it for yourself and also support the author. Yeah, the full article name is Dungeons & Dragons New License Tightens Its Grip on Competition. So after Stephen and Mark on Roll for Combat did a video where they say, here's a leak, we've got it, it's legit. Uh, There was, I don't know, 36, 48 hours where people were saying, we're speculating. Uh, And one common line of speculation was, a lot of the language in here is ridiculous overreach. A wizards would know never to do that. Uh, a lot of the language in here is not professionally written and can't possibly be part of an actual attempt at a contract. And they didn't know who the heck Stephen and Mark were because people weren't doing their due diligence to find out who they are within the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, several people, myself included, started to come in and say, hey, we're hearing this from m- multiple sources. It's not just Mark and them. And then someone emailed the whole thing to Linda. Now, we don't have the whole text. She's a journalist. She's not going to publish the whole text. It is for her, you know, information as part of a news piece that she's researching. Uh, and I I am under the impression that she is very carefully not naming her source as well, which is also journalistically appropriate. Mm-hmm. But everything that we are now talking about is based off that article and the fact that uh, the gentleman who runs the games division of Kickstarter confirmed that the language was the same as what Wizards of the Coast ran by Kickstarter and that Kickstarter had negotiated for a change to it so that there would be a lower fee for royalties, which we'll get to on Kickstarter. But that is a totally independent source of someone saying firsthand for the first time, uh, that person saying, I saw this from Wizards of the Coast, this is what they're doing. So it hasn't been released yet. It is still possible that we are misinterpreting the snippets we're getting 
Uh, Linda's article does not make it sound like that's the case, and she is quoting directly from it. Uh, I, I trust her to be right about that. It is also still possible that Wizards of the Coast will see that there is a furor uh, and either claim that they meant something different the whole time and reinterpret or change it. But everything we're saying right now is based off the snippets from the leaks and the confirmation from Kickstarter and from that one Kotaku article. Right. All, right. All that said, go ahead, Ryan. I was going to say, of the changes we know that are being proposed and summarized in the Kotaku, uh, excuse me, the Gizmodo article, uh, which one would you like to start with? Uh, I would like to start with claiming that the OGL 1.0A is no longer an authorized license. All That's right. the scary one. So as uh, I quoted earlier, the previous, the 1.0, uh, was described as irrevocable, that uh, it was mm -hmm. perpetual uh, worldwide. Uh, yeah, look at there section nine. Exclusive license. Look section at section nine, nine is the important one. Of the original OGL. I guess I should actually have the original OGL called up here, shouldn't I? I mean, I can in a few seconds if you don't have it. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Got it. Okay. Go ahead, Ryan. I, was I have it up you too if you want. Oh, never mind. Uh, Section 9 says upda uh, updating the license. Wizards or its de designated agents may publish updated versions of this license. You may use any authorized version of this license to copy, modify, and distribute any open game content originally distributed under any version of this license. That's kind of like the big line here, and Owen has more to say, I'm sure. So what that means is right now, if someone released something under version 1.0, and some people did, uh, that's an authorized version. And you can use version 1.0a to combine material from 1.0 and 1.0a. That would mean that if they were updating the open game license to version 1.1 and they put sixth edition rules under there, under this rule nine, since 1.0a is authorized, I can then take sixth edition material and release it not under version 1.1, which has a number of draconian rules, but release it under version 1.0a. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't really which talk about mean, this. The difference between 1.0 and 1.0a was a couple of revisions about like sexual content and endangering children, right? Like it was. Uh, no, actually, no. you're thinking of the SRD. Oh, that material okay. is not in 1.0a. 1.0a is it is tightening of just a little bit of language, but that's it. Okay. Mm -hmm. It is essentially the same, um, but. The, the reason that is important uh, is that if I have a perpetual license, a royalty-free license, and I can release anything under any authorized license, and clearly this license was authorized by Wizards of the Coast, it's been in use for, for 23 years, then anything they release under any OGL that they claim is an OGL, that it is an update to this, I can release under this set of rules. So that is one important note. They are claiming that this is no longer authorized. There is significant question as to whether they can do that or not. But even if they do, it may not matter because line four of 1.0a under grant and consideration says in consideration for agreeing to this license, the contributor contributors grant you a perpetual worldwide royalty-free non-exclusive license with the exact terms of this license to use the open game content. So that does not require this license to be authorized. That says that this license covers the exact terms of this license to use any content released under it. 
And so one in, one no. interpretation will be that you can still release anything you want under version 1.0a uh, and can ignore 1.1. 1. 1. That's one interpretation. Right. And we even, don't we and, don't know yet if that's going to be Wizards of the Coast interpretation and it sounds like not. Well, it's interesting that you say that because Wizards of the Coast's interpretation in that original FAQ about the OGL 1.0a that we brought up before says uh, under a specific question, can't Wizards of the Coast change the license in a way that I wouldn't like? Answer, yes, it could. However, the license already defines what would happen to content that has been previously distributed using an earlier version in section nine. As a result, even if Wizards made a change you disagreed with, such as uh, revoking authorization, you could continue to use an earlier acceptable version at your option. In other words, there's no reason for Wizards to ever make a change that the community of people using the open gaming license would object to, because the community would just ignore the change anyway. Yeah, that is from Wizards of the Coast, published yeah. in 2004, an FAQ about the OGL. Yes. Yeah. So, 1.1 says that the OGL 1.0a is no longer authorized it is a not clear that they have any legal standing to do that although those issues are settled in a court with lawyers that cost money rather than on podcasts with handsome looking gamers who can just tell you what it ought to work out as uh, <laughs> well thank you ellen i appreciate yeah, that you're 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 very well i mean i didn't mean me but you too oh come um, on oh you look great uh, all right let's not go down that rabbit hole um but this is one of the reasons why I want to make it very, very clear. We do not yet have the actual OGL 1.1, and we don't know what they're going to say they claim it means. If they claim it means that if you use 1.1 content, you cannot use 1.A content because 1.1 states that 1.0A is no longer authorized. And when you use 1.1, you are bound to that. That's fine and reasonable. That's going back if to the they, poison pill of the uh, GSL. Yes. Right. And so you just never use 1.1 and you can't use sixth edition material that they only release under it. If they say all open game content using any open game license now must be running under 1.1 and we don't need to reach out to people specifically to tell them that you don't have to agree to anything, that's a problem. And it's a huge problem that includes things like version 1.1 has a statement that says, and I believe I have the exact wording here, uh, Wizard of the Coast gets the right to use any content that licensees create, whether commercial or non-commercial. <clears throat> uh, Wizards will have a non-exclusive, perpetual, irrevocable, worldwide sub-license, so royalty-free license to use that content for any purpose. They also say that they can change version 1.1 at any time for any reason without notification. The reason this matters is that there is, for example, a Doctor Who role-playing game released under the open game license. If Wizards of the Coast is claiming that they can use all open game material released under any open game license without any restriction regarding product identity, then Wizards of the Coast is claiming they now have the regal right to use all the material, including the Doctor Who, the TARDIS, Cybermen, Daleks, from the Doctor Who role-playing game. That's one way to make a cinematic universe. Um, and obviously the BBC would not stand for that. No. Uh, exactly. It, and and even if that is what they mean, Wizards of the Coast may simply go to the BBC and say, hey, we'll, we'll sign this agreement saying that it doesn't apply to you. 
So that's that's part of the problem. They can go to individual people. And if if they think Paizo might fight fight them on this, they can go to Paizo and say, hey, you guys aren't allowed to do sixth edition. And in return, we continue to allow you to use 1.0A. But what we say is here's a new license. This license is exactly like 1.0A, except that, for example, maybe you don't have to put the OGL in the back of your book anymore. Um, so they can avoid all the current big boys if they want to and just pressure the middle or lower tier with the idea that we would have to go to court in order to fight them. Uh, they also claim that they have a royalty coming now under version 1.1, and that is based on all the money a product takes in, not on its profit. Right, it's gross. It is very specifically gross. And it starts, I believe, at $50,000. And that is not per product, that is the amount of money you make in a year over all your OGL products. It's in a year uh, yeah. specifically? I thought it was over a lifetime. I believe it's over a year. I think it's each year. It is. Uh, it's actually a significant problem because we talked earlier about how uh, Kickstarter signed a specialized agreement with them. The way that 1.1 is worded, if you make a Kickstarter and like, let's say you raise $80,000, but your goal is $100,000, you still owe royalties on the $80,000 you failed to collect. Wait according to this license uh it's actually a huge issue i i that's if it says that that's another huge issue um i i don't know that it actually says that because you didn't ever get that money right i think it's only money that you take yeah, in that is but that does raise the problem pledge, not actual but it does raise the problem if i sell something for five bucks on drive through and drive through takes a cut that cut can be seen as an expense to my $5 income. So I would owe them 25% royalty on the $5, even though 35% is already going to drive through, which works out to 60% before I pay for anybody. I would, I'd like to clarify my statement on what I said. Uh, in Linda's article under the header, will OGL publishers have to pay royalties? Uh, she specifically says, but the new OGL states that the commercial agreement covers all commercial use, uses, whether they're profitable or not. So if you go into the red on a Kickstarter that earned $80,000 in backing money, you will still owe Wizards of the Coast, regardless of the fact you did not profit from your venture. That's profit, right, but, but you don't actually collect any money if you don't make your goal. Right. What what she's saying is, if you made eighty thousand dollars and you spend ninety thousand on an eighty thousand Kickstarter mm -hmm. and you spend ninety thousand, which happens, you still have to give them all the time. Which it happens does. all the time. Yeah, you still have does. to give them the royalty on the eighty thousand. She's not saying that if you did a hundred thousand, you got eighty because that that commercial venture had a total income of zero. Mm -hmm. They may demand your twenty percent off zero, but twenty percent of zero is zero. <laughs> but yeah, that's that is another huge problem, and and smaller publishers are already frequently on less than a 25% profit margin yeah. all the time. They're frequently on less than that. So that $50,000, it, it seems to really just be, if you're a hobbyist and you're making a couple of bucks, you're safe. But once you want to take this professionally, like $50,000 is basically paying one employee, like one full-time yeah. employee, a, a company cannot survive on losing a cut from their $50,000 of gross. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely not. I, I, I'm a tiny little publisher. There are many years in which my gross before I pay royalties and art and for writing and everything else is 50,000 or more. Then there's the intermediate tier, which is between 50,000 and 750,000, 
and the expert tier they're calling it uh is for 750,000 and more and i think this is really like for the kickstarters that shoot the moon or for anyone that becomes big enough to actually become competition in dungeon dragons that's where they start uh really trying to cut you down and for critical role and for critical role sure yeah uh because they say any commercial use so if i make a video and have people pay me for the video that is a commercial use of their rules um it's bad it it absolutely and and also, in that article, Linda points out that according to the date she got, people were originally given, that were contacted, were given seven days to decide whether they were signing up onto 1.1 or not, and it is presented as you not having a choice. Yeah, it was like December 6th to the 13th or something like that, right, was yeah. the dates that she stated? Something like that, yeah. Uh, I thought it was January 13th, there we go. So if there you want to yeah, publish SRD-based yeah. content on or after January 13th, and commercialize it, your only option is to agree to the OGL commercial. This is a direct quote from her source. Yeah. Oh, sorry, and from the OGL 1.1 draft. From, from the OGL 1.1. So it is stating that you cannot... That's where I get worried. That is a direct statement that they are of the opinion you do not have the choice to release any OGL content under 1.0a, which means... If I was about to release a D6 adventure game under OGL 1.06a, which has nothing to do with and has never had anything to do with any rules ever created by Wizards of the Coast, it doesn't touch the 3.0 or, or 5.0 SRD at all, they're claiming I have to agree to this new rule system. And once I have, they can use what I print in any way they want. They are now claiming they own D6 adventure and d6 space and fudge and fate and, and there are more mm, a lot more so now the follow-up line to that sentence to that quote is that io9 source indicated that the final version of the document was originally intended for release on january 4th which would have given companies and creators seven business days to agree and comply now we're recording this as of january 5th which means that for whatever reason the original plan uh, as outlined here did not take place so we don't know how fresh this draft of the OGO 1.1 is or what the reason for that delay was. All we know is that if the intent was January 4th, something that we are not privy to has happened. And of course it was on the 4th or before that, that you had roll for combat begin to leak it and people begin to react to it. So uh, it is possible that this is a, a wait and see stance from them, or it's possible that it just took them longer to dot their I's across their T's. Goodness knows that the GSL for fourth edition didn't come out on the first several times they told us it would. Uh, and I don't think that was based on <coughs> any feedback. I just think it was taking them longer to get all the legal language where they wanted it. But I would say the intent here is clear as of the time that, that was going around and that includes having shown it to kickstarter and having negotiated with kickstarter about it the intent from wizards of the coast was to not allow anyone to publish anything under ogl 0.1 a ever again and that is overreach and it's bad faith and they are lying about past history uh as a company in an effort to do that yeah, and we know they are lying because we have their own statements as a company specifically contradicting what they're claiming. Here. Exactly. Yes. That is the reason that we, I, I hesitate to give them the benefit of the doubt 
at all about any interpretation of the the uh, 1.1 and the way it's outlined in this article uh, just because we know that like people we have spoken to directly it is a small industry and we are all interconnected it is a social industry it's based on a social game so of course we all talk we many of us were there it is a, a, a lifestyle in um hobby that we have been part of for 20 plus years uh 40 50 years like Mm-hmm. The people that were there are still here. And so these statements we know are false. We know personally, we've seen it, we've witnessed it. We can find references very quickly. Stephen Radley McFarland has been having a field day on Facebook, just finding all yeah. kinds of quotes that directly contradict things that the one point one says and that uh, Wizards of the Coast has, um, the statements Wizards of the Coast has made about Dungeons and Dragons. So, yeah, you, you don't have to believe us. Uh, we are not stating an opinion. Yeah. There are numerous links that show that this was not the position of the company and they are now claiming it was always the position of the company and that statement is false so that brings my main concern is that no matter how much anyone can poke holes in the 1.1 if they are going to strong arm publishers then there's very few people who could really uh, stand up to Mm -hmm. this the legal bullying that could uh, potentially take place indeed uh, yeah, although this is a place where you can start to have things like coalitions and GoFundMe campaigns, and uh, I, I certainly it would not be my intent to go quietly into that good night. No, this 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 half my life has been dedicated to these games. Uh, the past twenty four years have been dedicated to OGL based games since since before the OGL was published, um, and I, it, we. We were given assurances repeatedly for years on what their intent was, and we relied on those to make lifelong career decisions. And that reliance has weight within the law. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, it was in the I was watching the role uh, for combat one where uh, the the lawyer that they have that they brought onto the show was even talking about that. And one of the things that he said that was kind of matched what I know about the law. And again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm sorry. I, I broke our treaties and said it, <laughs> but um, one of the things he said is like the longer that a kind of like an agreement, like the OGL stands without being challenged or uh, honestly, I, Oh, and I, I, I'm sure you will agree with me enforced uh, ever reviewed at all by wizards in the past 20 years. Like, that kind of weakens the the legal standing wizards even has on this statement. And like, I, I don't know if I, I am of the personal opinion that wizard thinks thought the community was just going to roll over and do what they wanted. Uh, this could have disastrous side effects for them, but I'm getting into stuff. That's just more of what I think rather than the facts we have in front of them. Uh, it's a very, it's a very interesting time. It, it is. Um, I am, I mean, I am not willing to say with great confidence, for example, that Wizards of the Coast never enforced this because they could have contacted an individual publisher, uh, and I wouldn't have heard about it. Uh, and certainly, for instance, they they were trying to police the Book of Erotic Fantasy, which ended up being a change to the D twenty system trademark license, but it still was. I, I don't know what they said behind the scenes, for example, like you know, Paizo once came to me and said, "Hey, your goblins look too much like our goblins." If you don't cure that, we're going to consider it a breach under the OGL. So I fixed it. 
Um, yeah. But that is not common knowledge. So I know people have frequently said, well, Paizo never polices this stuff. Well, they, they had Liz Quartz looking at it all the dang time. And their first step was normally to very quietly go to someone and say, hey, we think this is a problem, which is what the OGL calls for. If yeah. there, there's, there's a whole cure breach uh, termination clause in there. And importantly, uh, if you do end up uh, uh, terminating someone's license for a breach, sub-licenses under it, people that built stuff off the OGL that you are now terminating, they survive. They still go forward. So uh, the the OGL 1.0a has numerous ways written into it about how it survives and how it changes. And I... I you know, this this can only be decided in a court of law, and that's going to be expensive, or it can be decided by Wizards of the Coast not taking this step, which would be in bad faith. And they still have time right now to come forward and say, such documents existed, but it was never our intention to release them. Uh, and when we have the final version out, you will see that these aren't concerns, and then change it. And then this will all end up being, hey, remember that time people got all worried about something that didn't happen? <laughs> right. Now, no Let's direction that is the pathfinder news reviews and interviews podcast and so i do want to end on a note relating specifically to how this affects paizo paizo currently publishes three lines tied to the ogl pathfinder second edition starfinder and the pocket editions of pathfinder 1e now that's kind of in reverse order of just how much ogl content those games use pathfinder 2e built from the ground up a brand new thing but starfinder really does have a lot of the ogl still uh, rely uh, you know in its dna and first edition, though they are doing the least with it, it's just reprint content uh, that is flat out completely built on the OGL. So and they're also still selling first edition PDFs. So it's not just oh, pocket editions; it's just the whole line. Yeah. All right. So what do we as Pathfinder fans have to worry about with the OGL 1.1? Uh, Owen, we don't know yet. Um, there are good lines of communication between Paizo and Wizards of the Coast. Uh, having worked at Paizo, Paizo has been aware of the potential risks of the OGL for a long time. Uh, they have released products that were not OGL, that were Galarian set. For instance, all their novels carefully avoid the use of any uh, OGL terminology. So you don't see magic missile ever in their, their books, uh, their novels. So they, they know how to do that. And they do have the money both to, they have both the money to go through a lawsuit if they have to. And they have the fan base that if Wizards of the Coast tried to grind them into the dust, they could, you know, do a fundraiser or do a, a $1 PDF sale or do anything they needed to, to to raise a chunk of money. So I don't believe that, pardon me, I don't believe that Paizo is going to go away. I don't believe that Galarian is going to go away. Could a deal be struck so that the specific older editions of the games go away? Sure, it could. But I am not of the opinion that Paizo is going to get swept away by the tide by this. But I absolutely think this is the time for all fans of Paizo to tell Wizards of the Coast in, <coughs> in flat terms, trying to get rid of all OGL publishers is unacceptable and we won't take it. Agreed. All right. Thank you, Alex and Owen. This has been, I really do feel like this was an informative and well-researched conversation so thank you both for uh bringing your expertise and doing the work before we uh <laughs> scheduled this very quickly and uh, this was yeah. a really quick turnaround for this episode so uh before we go i do want to give people the opportunity to check you out online on social media and check out your products so alex why don't we go with you where can people find you 
Well, if you want to find me on Twitter, where I am posting a lot about the OGL stuff, uh, my Twitter hashtag is at A-L-J-A-U-G. It's Al J-A-U-G. And uh, you can also find my products at uh, www.everybodygames.net. And Owen? Uh, most importantly, I have a blog at uh, owenkcstevens.com. Uh, I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash owenkcstevens. Uh, those are the two primary places to find me. Uh, I am also the owner and publisher of Rogue Genius Games. You can find that on drive-thru or the open game content. And I'm easy to find on Twitter and Facebook. And you can find out more about No Direction Network at nodirectionpodcast.com. Go to our Patreon and patreon.com slash nodirection. Find us on Twitter at No Direction. That's K-N-O-W, by the way, like the Druid spell. And you can find us at Facebook. Uh, I believe we're also just facebook.com slash no direction. Yes, facebook.com slash no direction. Uh, Ryan, where can time. they find it about you? All right. And if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter doing some stuff. I believe, oh yeah, I am <laughs> KD Ryan Costello on Twitter, uh, but I'm mainly on Facebook. And if you just look for Ryan Costello, you will find me very quickly. Uh, and I'm, does No Direction have a Patreon? Or yes, yeah, No Direction server? Patreon. I already mentioned it. Patreon.com slash No Direction. What about our but, Discord server? We, and we have an amazing Discord <laughs> server, all of which you can find links to on NoDirectionPodcast.com. It's good stuff, up. people. Thank it's you. good stuff. Go, it is go, good stuff. Go, go, go read it, look at it, and then give the money so that you can get, you know, this. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both. Until next time, I'm Ron Costello, and if you want to find the path, you need no direction.